Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Greetings, CHP listeners all over the world. Laszlo Montgomery here with another China History Podcast special episode. Since I got into the business of China History Podcasting in 2010, there are now a fair number of China History Podcast shows available for all of us to choose from. And one of the newer ones that first appeared in May 2021 was the Master of Demon Gorge Podcast, affectionately known by its listeners as MODG. This is one that I like uh, listening to the most. And for me, it checks all the boxes as far as what I like. Random hits to all manners of topics from Chinese history, presented intelligently and with some style. And the proprietor of this fine podcast show is Mr. William Han. And I finished his book a couple weeks ago called From the Wall to the Water, and we're going to talk about that too. So let me give a warm CHP welcome to Mr. William Hahn. Hello, hello, Laszlo. Thanks for having me on. And thanks for reading my book. Oh, my pleasure. Great book. Can't wait to talk about it. Yeah. Before we get to that epic trip you took and the book you wrote about this trek through Central Asia, let's talk about your background. It's not every day that someone the likes of me gets to speak with people who study Chinese history under Jonathan Spence. Uh, well, I, I, am, I assure you, I am not uh, one of Professor Spence's best students. Uh, he's had, uh, he's had uh, students all over the place, right? Famous professors, great uh, uh, modern uh, current uh, historians of China who are, who are former students of his. But, um, well, I was born in Taiwan and lived there until the age of 12 when my family moved to New Zealand, of all places. But so I grew up having a um, the initial sort of um, education, sort of nationalist Chinese, <laughs> you know, Republic of China type of uh, education when it comes to Chinese history, as it was presented to kids in the late 80s and early 90s. And I happen to be someone who uh, is very interested in history. So I sort of, sort of uh, gobbled those books uh, when I was a kid. And uh, but like I said, then my family moved to New Zealand, and so I went to high school there. And then I uh, decided to go to the U.S. for college, and that was when I ended up at Yale and in Professor Spence's classes. And uh, so he certainly taught me a lot, and he is, of course, um, as we say uh, in Chinese, a Taishan right? one of the a lodestar, a north star in the in the study of in, in study of Chinese history. So I was honored to be in his classes. Were they like small? classes, like 10, 15 people, or was it like a giant auditorium? Both. Spence, uh, Spence taught two classes. Uh, he would 
he would alternate them. So one year he would teach the uh, the big lecture class that um, basically every Yale student has to sign up to. I mean, of course, you don't have to; you're not required to. But it's one of those one of a small handful of, handful of courses at Yale where the mythology was that if you didn't if you didn't take Spence, his his big lecture class was just called just known as Spence. If you didn't take Spence, did you even go to Yale? Uh, <laughs> there's a couple of courses like that. And then the, the other half of the time, he would teach a small seminar that's only 15, uh, 15 students. Um, on, and so, so his big lecture course would be, on the, would be on modern China, so 1600 to the present. And then his, uh, his small seminar would be on the Qing dynasty. So I was in his seminar, actually, and um, so had, um, had a chance to um, get to know him a little bit a little bit more intimately. And that was very nice. So let's talk about your book. Uh, Gan Ying figures pretty prominently in there. And his journey from China to the West or from China to Rome was the one that you were attempting to retrace. I mean, he starred in a previous series I did on uh, Sino-Roman relations. So can you just tell us a little bit about who Gan Ying was and what, how he inspired you? Sure, sure. Um, Gan Ying, uh, in um, Chinese historiography, he's probably overshadowed by his big boss, uh, General Ban Chao, who remains today a household name among the Chinese. So Ban Chao was the man, the man um, credited with defeating the Xiongnu or the Huns. Of course, you know, scholars debate whether the Xiongnu are really the Huns, whether they can really be identified as the same people. But I'll, I'll, I'll adopt the the view Edward Gibbon adopted and say that they 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 were and so when I say Han, I mean the Xiongnu and Sura. Anyway, so um, so at, at the end of the first century AD, during the Eastern Han Dynasty, uh, the great general Ban Chao defeated the Xiongnu, the Huns, uh, sort of one last time. And at this time, because of the Chinese victory, uh, the way to the west uh, was open. You could now travel westward uh, in a way sort of less impeded than you might have might have been otherwise previously. And at this time, he pointed to one of his deputies, Gan Ying, a veteran of the wars against the Huns. And, uh, and Ban Chao said, I want you to go find this place that we've heard people talk about, Rome, or as they called it at the time, Da Qing, Great Qing. And as you know, Qing was the first imperial dynasty in Chinese history. So the Chinese called the Roman Empire Da Qing. So in a sense, Great China, which was, a, I thought, a very interesting way of referring to another country and a very complimentary way coming. Just giving them a little face. Really quite complimentary coming from the Chinese where you call another country. You know, they're like China, you know. Um, and so Gan Ying set out as an explorer and as an ambassador, as a diplomat from the celestial court of the Han Dynasty to go to try to find this place people talked about, Rome. And I became very interested in him because as even as a kid, like I said, I, was, I had the sort of uh, ROC education in, in Taiwan. And um, even as a kid, we heard about the story of this guy who uh, went to f- try to find the Roman Empire and then he reached the sea uh, and, and, but as a kid, we kind of forgot what his name was. Like I said, he kind of got overshadowed by his big boss, Ban Chao. And um, 
when I decided to set out to uh, make this trip and to write this book, which was in 2015, a few things had occurred to me. One was I was I was living in the states, but I was um, my my visa was running out, so I might have to leave. And um, and uh, and I thought about this man who was this you know this Chinese guy, this this Eastern man who tried to reach the heart of the Western world, and then in a sense got turned back. And I was kind of an Eastern man who had reached the modern Western world, New York, and was kind of getting turned back. So I was I was interested in Ganying because as a for the perspective of travel writing, it occurred to me that a lot of a lot of travel writing is about a European or an American going eastward or southward to Asia or to Africa. And um, uh, folks like Marco Polo, uh, one of being one of the most famous. And here was uh, here was a guy who was kind of doing it in reverse. Right. He was a, he was a Chinese man who was trying to discover Europe. And um, that that kind of interested me a great deal in this sort of reversal of roles. And so I wanted to follow where his path, uh, where his path led. So let's start at the beginning. Before you took off on such a journey as this, were there any extraordinary hoops you had to jump through? Or was it simply a matter of getting all the forms filled out? And, and how did you, throughout the journey, I kept wondering, what's he doing to pay for all this? I mean, were you loaded with cash or did they take credit cards? Uh, how did you, so tell me about how it all started, how you prepped for that. <laughs> money, money, money. Yeah. Um, well, of course, uh, right. There's, there's the visa issues. Um, the different countries along the way obviously presented different problems. I went to the Uzbek office at the United Nations, the representative office in New York, the representative office to the UN to get my Uzbek visa. And then I was able to pick up an Iranian visa in Hong Kong. And uh, the greatest challenge in here, of course, was the visa to Afghanistan. That was not something you could, uh, you could, you could just get off the street, obviously. And at the time, so I, I sort of scoured travelers' forums on the internet to see what people said about this, people who have tried getting a visa to Afghanistan at that time in 2015. And basically the word was, well, if, you're, if you come from a NATO country, forget it. If you come from one of the coalition of the willing, if your passport is from the coalition of the willing uh, or, or whatever it's called, you're not, you're, oh, basically you're not going to get a visa because your government, the Afghan government doesn't want, to, doesn't want to have problems with your government. But I happened to hold a New Zealand passport and New Zealand was not involved in the war. And then I learned that different Afghan embassies around the world took very different approaches when it came to visas. Some embassies will just tell you to get the hell out, forget it, go home. And some will let you do it. And I learned that the Afghan embassy in Kyrgyzstan was one of the more persuadable uh, offices. So I got my Afghan visa in Bishkek, the capital of, of Kyrgyzstan. And um, yeah, it was uh, it was it was an interesting experience visiting the and, and, uh, the Afghan embassy in in Kyrgyzstan and uh, trying to convince the, the the consular officer to stamp my passport. As far as money goes, do we want do we want to talk about money? 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's have because yeah. you know there are these places that you were going to, and I'm thinking, God, I mean, he's going to get killed any moment <laughs> here. And you know, you, you, you can't have been walking around with thousands of dollars on you. How did you uh, deal with that? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, there's again different countries presented different issues in terms of money, although although not always what you'd expect. So. Uzbekistan presented the problem that it's one of those countries where the value of its money was fictional, was notional. You know what I mean? So the government would say that one U.S. dollar was worth, I forget what the number was at the time, is it 2,000 som, something like that? But if you exchange it on a black market, it was more like 4,000, 5,000, something like that. I forget the exact numbers. <laughs> but so there's, so there's the true value of the money as a matter of economics, and then there's the, the value of it as a matter of law, according to the government's dictates. And um, in, in that respect, I actually made the, made the mistake of making certain bookings in advance, which was paid with a credit card, which meant it had to be paid at the nominal value, which means I paid twice, basically. Um, but then once you get to Uzbekistan, then you're like, just anywhere you go, there's people, there's, there's people who are like, psst, psst, you want to change money? Uh, I was almost like dealing drugs. Like China in the early 1980s. Right, a little bit like that. Right, right. And, 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 and also, um, the bills are ridiculously small. The value of, of the bills are, 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 are too small. So I think the largest bill amounted to about a dollar. So if you're trying to change money, people are just walking around with plastic bags of bundles of of cash all, all sort of, you know, with a rubber band all, all, all tied together. <laughs> and, uh, and you're like a little brick of, of cash on you. And so that was, that was, that was, uh, that was an experience. Um, uh, Afghanistan is a completely different issue in that, well, for the most part, people only wanted us dollars. You're, you're basically paying in us dollars and it's a lot more expensive than you'd think because there's no infrastructure for, backpacking right there's no infrastructure for 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 quote-unquote cheap travel there is don't there is the foreign correspondence set there's the reporters from the new york times the, the the guys from the state department the military contractors they are being they are paying with pentagon money they're paying with un money so they don't they don't mind paying more and in, in in crisp u.s dollars so that was a whole other issue but uh i made it work i made it work um, sometimes, uh, sometimes, um, exchanging money in a way that I was not comfortable with, uh, sometimes, uh, withdrawing from, from banks in the middle of, um, in the middle of nowhere, uh, uh, and, and, uh, making their clerks very uncomfortable. You made me uncomfortable. <laughs> so how many days or, or weeks was it from the time you set out to the time you made it to the water in, uh, Iran. Right. It's this um, took the whole thing took me about four months to do, which frankly I would have wanted to take a little more time if I if I could. But part of it was um, well, we talked about visa issues, and part of it was they don't give you a visa for very long. Uh, Afghanistan didn't give me a visa for very long. Iran didn't give me a visa for very long, and then you have to stay within, within the time frames they give you. If I could do it all over again, I might have wanted to 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 carry in a few places for longer. But yeah, it, it, it took me about four months to to do the trip. Mm. So let's start with Xinjiang. 
Was this where Ganying took off from in 97 AD? And so what were the highlights in Xinjiang? Right. He would have, he would have taken off from there. The, the Great Wall uh, at the, during the Han Dynasty was actually extended into what today is Xinjiang. At the time, they wouldn't have called it that, of course. At the time, they would have just called it Xiyu, the, the Western Lands. Mm-hmm. And um, the Great Wall was ex- ex- extended into this area. Although that extension has since fallen away, has been, you know, because you know, China lost control of the area for centuries. And, and so today's Great Wall doesn't go that far. But he would have gone to the end of the Great Wall at that time and then sort of, you know, taken the final bow and then said goodbye to his friend and then, and, then, and then gone out from the last Han Dynasty outpost, right, into the great, into the great unknown. So it's actually interesting to see, um, speaking of highlights, it was interesting to see some of those watchtowers from the Han Dynasty that are still there. You can still, you can still see them um, sort of well-preserved in the, in the desert environments. And then, of course, it, it was very interesting to experience the, the Uyghur culture in some of the centers of uh, Uyghur life, such as Kashgar, which is the westernmost city in in China, and it's sort of a, a traditionally a, a center of, of, of Uyghur culture, and there's there's enormous amount of history uh, and 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 uh, cultural color, you know, in in, in that area, uh, and um, as, as someone who's always been interested in this history of the Silk Road, it was really incredible to see. Was it all locked down and oppressive, or was it still okay when you were there? Well, this was 2015, so a lot of the, the the things people are concerned about nowadays that was that was later. So you know, mm. I didn't. There was uh, there was a degree of tension. You could you could you could you could feel it. And um, I went to some towns that were almost all Uyghur, right? Uh, and the, the, the sort of places in China where you can't really get around in Chinese. Uh, and, uh, and I'm obviously Han, you know, r- racially, I'm, I'm, Han, I'm Han, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not Uyghur. So, you know, you walk around the, 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 the Uyghur night market and everyone's looking at me funny. It's like, well, Hey, you know, easy guys. I'm from Taiwan or whatever I said to them. Uh, you can, so you can send some tension, but you know, this was, this was before a lot of the, a lot of the issues came out. So, uh, just beyond Xinjiang is Kyrgyzstan. Uh, which was so often tied to Chinese history and was a place so so rich with Silk Road history. When you were there, you sought out Li Bai's birthplace. Did you find Suyab? I did. I did. Suyab uh, or Suye Cheng in, in, to the Chinese. Um, it's, I mean, frankly, there's nothing there now. I mean, it's ruins, right? It's just ruins. And But there is this stretch of uh, Kyrgyzstan where it's, you know, there, there's multiple sort of old ruined cities near each other. So there's Suyap, there's Balasagun, there's, there's these incredible places um, that uh, if you're interested in, in history and archaeology are really interesting to see. And not so much in the Han Dynasty, but Li Bai, of, of course, was from the Tang Dynasty, the, the height of the Tang Dynasty. So the first half of the 8th century, you know, the Tang Empire had outposts out here too. Suya, Suyecheng was a, was a Chinese outpost. Uh, although it was a multicultural, it was a multicultural city, right? With multiple, with Nestorian Christians from, from maybe, you know, Eastern Roman Empire for all we know. Uh, and next to, 
Muslims, next to the, the Chinese, next to next to um, nomads, next to all kinds of people. And um, now that's partly why I I like it. You know, the the, the mixture of, of of cultures and the exchanges in the in this part. And of course, Kyrgyzstan was the scene of uh, a great turning point in, in Chinese history, the, the Battle of Talas in 751 AD, a critical moment in world history that is criminally unappreciated around the world, I think, right? When, right, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, so uh, Kyrgyzstan today is mostly, you're looking mostly at sort of grasslands and mountains and nature, but buried underneath is all this rich history. Yeah, you know, I always found it strange that they didn't capitalize on the birthplace of Lipa. I mean, that could be a really great tourist destination. It's not really that far from China. And, you know, with the way how he is up in the the poet, you know, the Chinese poetry pantheon, the fact that they just did nothing with it, they, did, right. they didn't they didn't even have a plaque or anything. There was just like nothing there to. No. And I had to ask around to, and ask around and to be like, does anyone know where it is? <laughs> and uh, yeah, that was so surprising. <laughs> it's a great recommendation we can make to the Kyrgyz Tourism Board. Yeah. Battle at Talas, too. I right. Mean, right. Wow. So what were your impressions of Uzbekistan? You visited quite a few places. I know this land is also home to no small amount of Silk Road history. Right. And and recently, Uzbekistan was front and center in all our news feeds as the site of the recent eight-nation Shanghai Cooperation Organization meeting. So tell me about your experience going through Uzbekistan. Well, we touched on some of the issues with, with Uzbekistan, like the money. Like my Kyrgyz friend said, they're just so weird over there. There is something, <laughs> there is something very bizarre about modern Uzbekistan. You know, it, from it is an, an authoritarian country. So some of the bizarreness just comes from, comes from that. It is historically Uzbekistan was the center of the Timurid Empire, right? The empire of Timur, Timur the lame Tamerlane in in European historiography, right? And Uzbekistan sort of self consciously makes itself the heir of Timur. You know, there's a huge equestrian statue of the guy in the middle of Tashkent, the capital city. So you can sort of see how the, the modern, uh, the post-Soviet authoritarian, you know, government is trying to show itself as sort of the heir to Timur. And that that is, in a sense, ridiculous, right? And there's there's a, there's a weirdness to it. And there's a monumentalism to it, which... Part of it is is its history, right? Unlike Kyrgyzstan, which is mostly mountains and grasslands and nomads and, and animals, Uzbekistan has these you know ancient cities with these ancient architecture that are among the grandest in the world. So Bukhara, Samarkand, the, these places, and you you see them, and you see how impressive they are. Uh, you you see the photos from the from the, uh, the SCO meeting. And then you see them taking pictures, you know, with the backdrop of the grand Timurid buildings. Those would be from the 14th century, early 15th century, maybe. Right. So very interesting to see. Very interesting also to think about it's the, the impact of modern China you see today in today's Uzbekistan, as opposed to as opposed to ancient China. You see all these products uh, with Chinese language written on them. 
because they're made in China and they're all over the place in Uzbekistan. And the locals don't seem to appreciate that these are made in China or these are made by Chinese companies. They don't seem to even realize it. I'm like, well, yeah, this is, you know, this is, this is Chinese. You know how I know? Cause I can read the logo cause it says so on the, on the thing. I noticed you, uh, on your way to Iran, you skipped Turkmenistan and Kazakhstan. Why did you uh, forego those two places? Visas too hard? Well, no, I didn't. I didn't exactly. It wasn't so much about skipping uh, these countries. I did actually later on go back to Kazakhstan and Tajikistan. I, I have yet to make it to Turkmenistan. The visa to Turkmenistan is pretty difficult to get. Uh, but I didn't mm-hmm. so much skip these places as to say that well. If the, the, if the concept here, if the conceit here is to retrace Ganying's footsteps, then he wasn't out here sightseeing, right? He wasn't trying to hit all the Central Asian republics. There were no Central Asian republics at the time, right? He took a path where he had a mission. He was going in, in one direction, and then, he, and then he came back to China. So when I set out, I was, I was kind of saying, well, I'm going to trace a path that as far as I'm able, is a path that matches the path that he did without thinking that, oh, well, there's also Tajikistan here and I must touch down there just to say I've been there. So, so, so that's why. Yeah, isn't there fighting going on right now between the Tajiks and the Kyrgyz? Or is that those two? And the Kyrgyz. What are they fighting about? There he is right now, yeah. Well, as there's these uh, border disputes back from from you know leftover from the Soviet legacy, where I think it's a little bit unclear which which part should belong to whom. Mm. Although notably, I think people don't completely appreciate that the Tajiks are culturally different from the Kyrgyz and the Kazakhs and the Uzbeks. So there is that. There is there is a if you, if we look for reasons explanations of conflict and history in, in culture. Then there is that division. The Tajiks, uh, the Tajik language is a dialect of Persian, so it's similar to Farsi in Iran, and um, they trace their they trace their their ancestry to to the Persians. Whereas the, the Kyrgyz, the Uzbek, the Kazakhs, they are they are Turkic peoples. They, their language is similar to Turkish. Mm. I've really enjoyed your descriptions, uh, just going through Uzbekistan and viewing all those great sites, but. Afghanistan was what really uh, did it for me. So when you made it to Afghanistan, I was like out of breath reading your narrative. It's almost impossible for me to think about Afghanistan in the first century AD with Balkh, Bactria, and then to see today, you know, how far this place has fallen. Were there any traces of Ganying in Afghanistan? I confess that there is one city that the records tell us quite clearly he passed through. That city is known in Greek as Alexandria Prothesia, which today is Farah, Afghanistan. And I must confess that even though I made it through Afghanistan, I did not go through Farah because I was told, and well, it was true, it was crawling with Taliban. And um, I just, oh, wow, well, I decided it was one thing. It was one thing to come to Afghanistan. It was another thing to come to Afghanistan, to come to Afghanistan and then to go straight to sort of Taliban headquarters. Uh, that might not have been wise. So um, I, didn't, I didn't quite get to the exact spot that we know he was at. I didn't quite get there. But, well, c'est la vie. 
but it is it is you know if you you're, if you're asking about traces of of uh, of of Chinese history, there is of course the entire Hazara population, which uh, were well, is that Chinese history or isn't that Chinese history? The Hazara minority in in Afghanistan are descended from the people brought over by Genghis Khan and the, the Mongol invasion in the early 13th century. So to that extent, you know, they are they are tied to Chinese history. Although of course the Mongols also invaded China. It was it wasn't like the Chinese came and 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 um, brought the Hazara. It was it was the Mongols who did who did that. There's that there's that history that the history of the Hazara who are very much present in in today's uh, Afghan life. The Hazara are Shiites, so they are religious. They are a religious minority as well as well as an ethnic minority in Afghanistan. So they are uh, persecuted. Um, I think the Kite Runner that that international bestseller that's about Hazara Hazara boy right the Afghans are very conscious of uh, certainly when I was there I heard I heard folks talk about this they are mm-hmm. conscious of being sort of caught between the great empires the Americans today back in the day the British yeah. the Russians and uh, the Chinese okay. right they are caught between these 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 powers and I had one interlocutor who sort of said to me, you know, we're always, we Afghans are always waiting for, looking for one of the great powers to come and help us. Today, we're looking for the Americans to, to come help us. Tomorrow, it might be the Chinese. Wow, just reading about everything you had to go through, just to, from place to place and the security. And I mean, it just, it was a daily struggle just to live your life and not get killed on that day. It just so heartbreaking to see that happen i mean with the afghan people were they were they generally did you find them to be just you know generally nice people just caught up in this historical wreckage right average average afghan people were you know very friendly to me i did something very unusual for me in afghanistan which was i dressed in afghan clothes I don't usually cosplay when I go to <laughs> other countries. Of course, in the modern, of course, in a modern world, I mean, most parts of the world, people dress pretty much the same, right? You can, you can go with the jeans and t-shirt in most, most countries. Afghanistan is not like that. You know, people wear traditional clothes. And I uh, wanted to stand out a little less than I certainly already did. So I uh, purchased a, an Afghan outfit in uh, Mazari Sharif in the north, right after I crossed the border from Uzbekistan, and it was common in in Afghanistan for uh, even men to sort of wear a headscarf that sort of half covers their face. Um, I think it's mostly about the sun, um, as opposed to a religious requirement. And so, if I just sort of did that and walked around in Afghan clothes, my face half obscured, most people couldn't immediately tell if they weren't paying attention. They couldn't necessarily immediately tell I was a foreigner. But certainly if I walked into a restaurant and tried to order food, uh, people are going to know, right? And, uh, and, <laughs> and I, I certainly took uh, quite a few restaurant proprietors uh, by surprise this way. It's like, what is this foreigner doing in my, in my establishment? What's happening? Uh, and um, but some of them were certainly very friendly. Uh, I had sort of kids who wanted to take pictures of me. I had folks who wanted to, you know, tell me everything about their about you know their 
their area, about about their their culture. But of, of course, I also had uh, plenty of people who were afraid for me. <laughs> I, I can I can understand that. I had plenty of Afghans who were sort of like, no, you need to watch out for this. No, you need to watch out for that. I sort of got this got a taxi in 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 the middle of Kabul uh, to try to go to some place, and 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 he was just like, no, no, no. We, we cannot go to that neighborhood. Please, sir, let's, please, let's not do that. And I was like, no, no, we can go, we can go. And he was like, please understand, the first thing they do is they shoot the driver. Okay, well, if you're going to be like that, then I guess, I guess I'll let it go. Yeah, it just seemed like that whole part of the book in Afghanistan was just all about getting out of places alive you know, and you're just a tourist, uh, this innocuous person just seeing the country. And every day, every site was, okay, how do we get there and not get blown up or killed? Right, right. There's nothing like the prospect of death to concentrate one's mind. And so I remember Afghanistan vividly. Let's just put it that way. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Yeah. So then you made it to Iran. And, uh, you know, you provided a very lucid and easy to understand explanation of the events going back to 1953 with the overthrow of Mossadegh and how we got to where we are today. I mean, at least in the United States with our relations or the absence of relations with the Islamic Republic of Iran. So were there any traces of Chinese history to be found in Iran? There's certainly traces of the Chinese present. I was amused to find in the metro in Tehran that the trains are very obviously made in China. Chinese maize. You, you can you can you can see the see the company names on the side. I'm sure they got a good deal. I'm sure they got a good deal. The the history of it again, the Mongols kind of tied us together in a sense, right? Of during the Mongol Empire, China and Iran were the same country, right? During the Yuan Dynasty. And the impact of the Mongols on the Iranians, on the Persians, cannot be understated. The city of Nishapur, for example, I was in, I was in the city of Nishapur. Nishapur, pre-Mongol conquest, was this major center of culture. It produced some of, some of Iran's great poets. Um, but you, you go there today, it's, a, it's, it's like a one-cow town, right? It's a, it's a rinky-dink, dusty, small city in eastern Iran with very little to recommend it in and of itself today. And it's because the Mongols kind of destroyed everything and killed everyone. They still talk about an entire period of their history as Ilkhanid, the, the Mongol period, the, the, the Khanate period, when, when the, the Mongol Khans ruled. 
so these these all these connections, right? You had the uh, Marco Polo talked about the assassins that that um, the the assassins who uh, you know the Hashishins, which which is the source of the English word assassin. They answer to the old man of the mountain, and you can go see the castles of, of the assassins north of north of Tehran today. And so he talked about he talked about these guys in his book while he was while he was on his way to get to China, right? I was visiting some some mosques, and there was this um, there was this young man who was just kind of like, "Why why do you want to see the mosque?" And I said, "Because it's." Like a famous mosque, and it's seven hundred years old, and he's and and but he's like, yeah, to us it's just you know we go there every every weekend to you know to to pray every Friday we go there to pray and that's all. And so I don't know why you want to see it. Again, I think we see a lot of the impact of modern China in places like Iran, in much of the the what people we used to call the third world, right, the developing world. The and certainly my experience is true in the Middle East. Where the Chinese today, uh, I think, hold a place in their imagination, in that it's a non-Western country that was not, properly speaking, a colony of a Western power that has become strong, has become powerful, apparently without Western help, and so I think to in the imagination of a lot of uh, a lot of folks in the Middle East and, uh, and and in my experience in Africa, there is a sense of like how, you know the, the Chinese they're they are smart huh they are there's something about them that they are able to become strong after a period of weakness and how can we be more like them? There's a I think there's a kind of fascination with that and so everywhere I went uh, people wanted to 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 talk to me about it. And um, and they're, again, and they're also very conscious. What in in Uzbekistan, I said, people often didn't even realize that the, the refrigerator they were using was made in China or something. But in Iran, the same young man who was sort of like, I don't know you what why you want to see the mosque. He took me through the local bazaar, the, the market in 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 that in that town, and 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 he just kept he just we just walked through the bazaar and he would just point at everything that was made in China, right. That's that's actually Chinese. That's Chinese. This is Chinese. This is Chinese. The whole time, and it was and it was just like everything in the market was made in China, and we were in the market in Iran. Well, having been in that business for thirty five years, I, I could see why. As you went from place to place and visited these temples and and, and mosques and and just how today. They're nothing. It's like when you're going through there, I could hear how quiet it was and just thinking, oh, man, you know, hundreds or a thousand years ago, this was just one of the most vibrant places on the planet. I mean, there was so much culture through uh, going on here. There were so many mixing of people from all over the region, and there was so much wealth here. There were centers of culture, literature, and just today... Even the monuments that are left over is like nobody even looks twice at them or even contemplates what it was like at one time. Just uh, wild. 
that really reading your book that that you know you you did you visited these desolate places and then you said yeah but you know 500 years ago or 700 years ago this was what it was and that was that was really great right there's there's the actual completely ruined places right like suyab uh Levi's birthplace where you're just you're just looking at a you're just looking at some you can just barely see the outline of the maybe the trace remnants of the city walls that were there um you're, you're, you know, in Iran, I was in Hecatompolis, uh, the site of Hecatompolis, which at one point was the capital of the Parthian Empire. And now it's a garbage dump, basically, next to a, next to a small village. Um, but right, if you're, if you're, if you're thinking of um, the sort of the the rise and falls of great civilizations and great powers and the inconstancy of mankind's achievements, yeah, absolutely. If you if you want that to be impressed upon you, you know take the trip I did. Did you have any dangerous close calls to your personal safety? I mean, it's like reading your book. Everything is like, oh no, what's going to happen now? <laughs> but you just sort of got through it. But were there any, was there anything that where you said, oh shoot? Uh, well, Afghanistan obviously tops that, tops that list, right? I figure. Only, only one car bomb went off while I was in Kabul. I'll, I'll say that. And, not with you in it. I <laughs> not, not with me in it. I missed the car bomb. I uh, I had I had been in that part of the city earlier in the day, but when it exploded, I was not within its uh, within range. So I didn't know about it until until I saw it like an hour later. Of course, Afghanistan is is hairy that way, and uh, I developed an unfortunate habit of looking over my shoulders, right, to see if anybody was following me, um, because certainly. There were folks out to kidnap foreigners. What I, my understanding is that there were folks who were sort of contract kidnappers or freelance kidnappers. They would, you know, kidnap foreigners and then and then basically sell you to the Taliban or or, or just try to demand a ransom from your from your government, um, just try to get money. It's, it was business. It was business, right? They had nothing against you personally. Just see a foreigner and say, "Oh, I can make some cash off this guy if we just." He was stupid enough to show up here. Let's make some money. He was stupid enough to come. <laughs> right, exactly. It's not my fault. And then if you don't pay off, then they give you to the Taliban, right? That was the explanation I got from some NGO workers I uh, I met in Kabul. And they were very high strung for, 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 for very good reason, right? They 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 lived there for you know months at a time. And I was I was just passing through. They had to live there. But I got through Afghanistan, you know, like 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 we established. I'm still here, not kidnapped by the Taliban. So uh, no ransom was paid, so so I made it. But certainly at times I was I was afraid for my safety. Although once I got through Afghanistan, ever ever since since then, right after that, I always had this feeling. It's like, man, now if I get hit by a car just on the streets of Tehran or something, that would be so silly. I mean, you you made it through a war zone, and now you just get hit by a car. Come on, man. <laughs> so let me ask you, what was there? Your general impression of Central Asians towards Chinese, I assume in your case, they didn't differentiate between overseas Chinese or from the mainland or from Taiwan. What did you experience? Right. So one thing I have learned through my long travels is people won't let you forget who they think you are, right? <laughs> people won't let you forget. <laughs> people won't let you forget your race. I was born in Taiwan. I'm we don't need to get into the controversial topic of you know who is who is Taiwanese and who is Chinese and and, and all that. Were, were your parents also from Taiwan, or did they come over from the mainland? 
So my grandparents came from the mainland. They were they were、uh, all four of my grandparents were mainland. Three of them were in the army of the Republic of China.、Uh, so even one of my grandmothers. My dad was born in Nanjing, actually, and he was you know so as a one year old、mm. you know as a baby they they brought him to Taiwan. So they're very much、um, the what's called the Waishengren, right? In in Taiwan, they're called the Waishengren, the the, the people from out other provinces,、mm. from outside provinces. So that's that's sort of my my family legacy. And so in that regard, you know, I'm not, I don't object to the to the Chinese label, except of course internationally, if you say you're Chinese, then people think that means you're from the People's Republic of China, which I'm not, right? And there are expectations of culture and attitude and you know things like that that are attached to saying you're from China, and which I, again I'm not. But people won't let you forget who they think you are, and and so right. So for much of you know when you're traveling through Central Asia, it's frankly easier just to say Chinese, right? For if you if you look like me, it's easier just to say Chinese, unless you're going to get into a whole conversation about it, which sure sometimes I did. And then, and then I would say, well, actually, I'm not from the PRC. You know, this is this is, this is my story. And、uh, and and sometimes, if if if、uh, the folks I'm talking to are old enough, they they'll 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 even remember Chiang Kai Shek.、Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> right? They'll be, oh well, you know, yeah, Mao Zedong and Chiang Kai Shek. How do you feel about you know those guys? And and in some in some cases, of course,、um, I am speaking Russian with these people. Right? Russian is still the The, the 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 lingua franca in、uh, the Central Asian republics, or at least they don't expect me to learn Kyrgyz, right? So,、um, but they don't speak English or, or Chinese, and I happen to have studied Russian in college. I'm not fluent or anything, but I know enough to to be able to get around a little bit in in Russian speaking countries. And so, you know, if if I don't even know the language well enough to get into a, a long Disquisition about my background, then you know, maybe I'll just say Kitai, Kitai, China, you know, or, and, and it's fine. <laughs>、um, and then, like I said, you know, people won't let people won't let you forget who they think you are, and people won't, you know, so much of、um, when you're the foreigner, you know, so much of、uh, so much of what that means to local people is a set of. Cultural stereotypes and a set of、uh, images, and so you know, I got so frustrated at some point. It's like, man, if I had another dollar, if I had a dollar every time somebody brought out Bruce Lee with me,、uh, or, or Jackie Chan,、uh, I would have a lot more dollars.、Um, and it, you know, it, it, there are times when it gets frustrating. I'm sure if you went on the same trip I did. Uh, which I don't recommend today. Certainly, now that Afghanistan is Taliban controlled again,、um, you would have、uh, a very different experience. I think. Were they positive about China, or did they have a positive opinion? <laughs> I mean, the people that you ran into. Yeah. So, so、um, like I was saying, there is a, there is a, there is a, there is a kind of almost strange kind of respect that I think、um, today's China attracts. From a lot of people in 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 the Middle East and Central Asia, in that you know China is a country that is now powerful, is now considered a great power, even though, as I'm sure many of your listeners know, for much of the so-called century of humiliation, right, for much of the previous for much of the previous 150 200 years, it was not the kind of great power you know 
that you know we are not that strength we are not now that strength which in old days moved earth and heaven right to to, to borrow from Tennyson but today's China is powerful again the PRC is again a great power and so there is a lot of sense I think in places like Iran where people are like how can we be more like that you know how can we be the great Persian Empire again you know so then we don't have to take this crap from the Americans and you know there's that there's that there is a bit of that sense mm. well I mean if there's a role model for Central Asia I think it would be more China than uh, than in the West and there's a lot of uh, belt and road projects that are going out through Central Asia I'm you know dubious about what the benefits are and whatnot people can argue that but I mean you know there's there at least it represents a chance for you know, for those right. countries that have that, that are affected, right? Certainly, you see the you see the markers of China's modern China's economic uh, influence over these countries just just all along the way. Like I said, you know, you see all these products, Chinese made products in Uzbekistan, in Iran. I remember seeing a um, there was a mosque I saw, um, and um, and they had a clock. They had a big digital. They had a big clock over the the entrance, and. It was displaying. It was displaying the Chinese calendar. It was. It was telling you what date it was in the Chinese lunar <laughs> calendar, <laughs> in Chinese, and over a mosque, <laughs> and, and uh, uh, in Iran. And I was just like, "You guys don't. You guys have no idea what that says, do you?" Um, I remember seeing a there was a, a, a kids' playground in Uzbekistan, and they had this model rocket you know for the kids to to, to 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 climb on and on the side of it it said uh it read um you know china aerospace in chinese and just nobody it you know it doesn't it doesn't register with them but the markers are there yeah which one of these countries that you visited uh which one would you like to go back to as far as it was really a pleasant place to be. Oh, Afghanistan, obviously. <laughs> no, listen, these are incredible places to visit. And I would go back to any of them if there's opportunity. And obviously with the caveat that in some cases, it's not that easy to go back to them. Uh, certainly when I was there, yeah. you know, the Afghanistan was still the, the, the NATO-supported regime, the, the American-supported government. It is not anymore. And so it is a whole other beast now if I, if I want to go to Taliban control in Afghanistan. The picture with Iran has changed in 2015. A gentleman named Barack Obama was still the American president. And at, actually, when I got there, they had just struck the uh, Iranian nuclear deal. So there was a moment when uh, Iranian people were felt pretty good, pretty pretty optimistic about future relations with America. But obviously, things changed after that. So if we go there now, if I go there now, I'm not sure, you know, how uh, what attitude I would find uh, among the people. But of course, this is also to bring it back to, um, you know, your race and your your the ethnic identity, national identity that you broadcast to the world. I actually am not American. I'm not a U.S. citizen, but I also, people don't guess that I'm American. People guess I'm Chinese, right? So then in a place like, in a place like Iran, you know, that gives me a certain room to maneuver, which wouldn't be the case if you come across as American. Well, 
I really enjoyed this book. I've always been a fan of these travel narratives. I love that whole genre going back to those antiquarian books from the 18th and 19th centuries. I know some of them are pretty horrible, but <laughs> some of them are, are not bad. I mean, just regular people having some very interesting observations of these countries back at that time. It was really, uh, I really enjoyed that. Right. There's all these old, uh, old travel logs, right, from the old, uh, from the, from, what, the olden days, from the sort of the um, British Empire days or the, the Sven Heden, uh, Sven Heden, the Swedish adventurer and archaeologist. Or uh, Alexander Burns, the British uh, diplomat and adventurer, wrote about Afghanistan, his, his travels in, in Afghanistan, right? Before he got, before he got killed by the Afghans. Uh, that's another story. Uh, <laughs> so there was, right, there's all those, uh, you know, sort of imperial era of, of travel writing that, that um, I'm sure today read as sort of interesting relics from the past. Yeah, you know, I started this podcast called the China Vintage Hour, about uh, I don't know about five years ago, and uh, and I would read excerpts from all these old antiquarian books from people who visited China. Needless to say, it is a very niche niche uh, <laughs> genre. <laughs> well, travel writing changed. Travel writing changed after that, and right. So I think I think I think modern readers expect uh, somewhat somewhat different flavors than the way those guys were writing. Back in the day, that probably that probably explains something. Yeah, I mean, the whole point of reading them was because of it. it was It was a different flavor. It's just something. that's also true. That's also true. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So before we go, let's talk about MODG, Master of Demon Gorge. Where did that name come from? Well, you see, the China History Podcast was already taken. So, uh, <laughs> and the history of China podcast, <laughs> and the Chinese history podcast. So, um, well, the name refers to uh, Gui Guzi, uh, whom I'm not sure you know. Uh, Gui Guzi literally translates as, well, I guess more literally, it translates as the master of Ghost Valley. But I decided to uh, to take the liberty of a bit of a literary flourish and make it uh, Demon Gorge instead of instead of Ghost Valley. Gui Guzi was a um, was a, a a man who lived during the Warring States era, so in the fourth century BC, maybe fifth century BC, who was said to have uh, just a, a guy who knew a lot of stuff. And he was a he sort of ran a one man university in this in in where he lived the Ghost Valley or Demon Gorge and where a young young man would uh, enterprising young man would go to him and try to learn uh, learn different subjects and they basically had to declare a major upon 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 finding a master because the master knew everything so they had to had to come and say what do you want to study? You know, I, you know, I can't teach you everything I know because that's too much for, <laughs> except for me, of course, I'm a genius, but for any other man, you know, there's no <laughs> way you can learn all this. So you got to pick a subject. Is it going to be uh, the art of war? Is it going to be astrology? Is it going to be medicines? You, know, you got to pick a major. Um, so anyway, he's sort of a slight, you know, somewhat mythical uh, figure <laughs> in, in Chinese history. And I just thought he was cool. And um, because I intended to uh, range over all kinds of different topics, although, you know, not quite like he did in that he really ranged over every, you know, every subject that was known to Chinese civilization, every area of knowledge that was known to Chinese civilization. I just meant that I would try to 
just skip uh, from you know one bit of Chinese history to another and um, and um, just 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 talk about what I felt like talking about that particular week. Is this like a a, a one person effort, or do you have anybody helping you? You doing the whole thing by yourself? <laughs> no, it's just me. Uh, it's. Uh, I think it's fair to say. There's nothing wrong with that. China History Podcast <laughs> well, is basically yeah. you're looking at. Well, I, I think you run a. Uh, I think you. I think you run a, uh, a, a much more professional uh, organization over there. Much more professional operation there than 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 I do, Laszlo. <laughs> <laughs> of course, you are much more experienced at the at, at the podcasting uh, 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 business than I am. Um, but uh, you know, I I I started it as in in essence. As a you know, as a hobby in essence, you know, something to something to something to do because I enjoyed it, but also because, and I'm sure I'm I'm sure you you can relate. The average American, the average Western citizen, does not know much about China. Basically, yi <laughs> jiuhua, and our basic does not know very much. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> I think I think it's fair to say the average American knows very close to nothing about about Chinese history and, and culture and and yet as Master Sunzi told us in the Art of War, it is important to know yourself and know your other. Right? Doesn't even have to be the language in the in in, in the Art of War wasn't even enemy. Right? Jutsi, jipi, know yourself and know the other. Right? And uh, there are you know all these. You know, even stories we learned when, you know, if, if, if you went to school in, in Taiwan in the late 80s, in early 90s, you would have learned this stuff when you were six years old, seven years old. And uh, it's completely, uh, it's completely terra incognita for, for the average American. And I just thought, you know, I mean, I can, I can just literally tell you a story from when I, from that I read when I was in first grade. And, and this, would be, this, would be, this would be news to you. <laughs> and, uh, but so, so a part of it is is my feeling that, um, to my small extent, perhaps I can contribute a little bit to understanding between East and West. Yeah, you know, uh, a, a few months ago, I was on this very, oh, you know, I would call them a very right wing MAGA talk radio station in, in North Georgia. And I use that Sunzi quote because, you know, they were insisting mm. that, you know, China mm. is our enemy. And I said, well, you know, uh, you know, for you and your listeners, if China's our enemy, it would behoove you to study the uh, words of Sunzi and know thy enemy and know thyself. In China, they're learning about us. They know they could tell you anything you want to know about the United States. So, you know, it's important to learn about China first before you go uh making them your your enemy for life so yeah that's what these podcasts are for they're they're out there for anyone who wants to raise their awareness about china oh i think you're i think you're doing god's work here to uh promote understanding yeah yeah i'm trying i'm trying so what are you up to now you're over in europe as we as we speak here i i joke except, except it's not a joke i divide my time between here there and everywhere uh, so I've, I've, um, the truth is, and this, this shocks a lot of people is that after I did my grand trip, which is recounted in the book, I never really stopped traveling. And, uh, so that was, so that's seven years of living one way or another on the road. Of course, you know, once the pandemic started, I had to, I had to sort of hunker down a little bit. 
But so uh, I am in Europe for the moment. I will uh, go back to Taiwan, my native land again soon enough. And what am I up to is you heard it here first. Besides the book, which is coming out, I am uh, knock on wood going Hollywood. <laughs> I am working with certain producers and, um, and some folks in, in L.A. on a film which I will hopefully be able to say more about once more has firmed up. Uh, I'll be able to say more about it. <laughs> I hope it's better than that uh, Great Wall, uh, Dungy <laughs> Mo's uh, uh, effort. Right, right, right. Let's make a movie called The Great Wall and put Matt Damon in it, yeah. Although, since we are, since I am on CHP, let me just slip in one little teaser in that I'm working in a Zhuangzi angle. Zhuangzi, the great uh, Taoist philosopher, in the screenplay that um, that that I've written for them. So, hopefully, that stays in the, in the movie. So, any last words before we hit the pause button? Well, last words: A, please buy my book. Thank you very much. From the Wall to the Water, available on Amazon, wherever books are sold now. But also, I, I guess I'll leave everyone with a with a thought with. Um, that the thought that I actually began the book with, which is, you know, I do enjoy travel very much and um, I do really believe in its value. And there is a Chinese proverb. It doesn't go the way you think. So the journey of 10,000 miles and everybody thinks it begins with a single step, right? But this is a different one. The journey of 10,000 miles is better than the study of 10,000 volumes. So we learn a great deal uh, from our travels, we learn a great deal about the world, about history, about other peoples that may seem alien to us. Otherwise, we learn a lot about ourselves through travel in a way that is really difficult to do from books or anything else. Bai wen bu ru yi jian, as they say. Bai wen bu ru yi jian, exactly, exactly. Also that, right. Hearing about a hundred, hundred times is not the same as seeing it even once, right? <laughs> well, once again, thank you, Mr. William Han. His new book, From the Wall to the Water, is fresh off the presses from none other than that fine source for all kinds of books about China and beyond, Earnshaw Books, Graham Earnshaw, proprietor, of course. So many Earnshaw titles making it to the back catalog of CHP shows. I'll have a link to uh, William Hahn's book at the show notes, as well as a link to the Master of Demon Gorge podcast. Again, my number one in this increasingly crowded space. So thanks for tuning in, everyone. My thanks to Mr. William Hahn for taking some time to chat with me and my fantastic CHP community of listeners. This is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from Los Angeles, California, as usual imploring you to come back again next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.